Welcome to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We believe that there is no message more life-changing and more relevant than the gospel. It is our earnest prayer that you will be enriched as a disciple and that you will hear the good news today. It is so good to be here today, and thank you for that wonderful singing. That was, that was amazing. That was wonderful. It's good to hear just all the voices blending together, and we had a little bit of a, a throwback worship today, a cappella, and singing some songs that we may not have sung for a while. I have a friend who said that in the Church of Christ, there are two kinds of songs. There are old songs and new songs. And then he continued and said, the, the, the goal with the old songs is to make them shorter, as in... We will sing hymn number 238, verses 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 15. <laughs> and we will not sing the chorus until after verse 15. And then he continued and said that the goal with the new songs is to make them longer, as in, You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Yes, I long to worship you, worship you, you. <laughs> so we need a little of both, don't we? A little old song, a little new song, that's good. Adam has been talking uh, the last few weeks, his sermons from the book of Acts, he's been talking about turning the world upside down. And I thought this morning I'd like to begin by just sharing a picture of what that is going to look like. What, what will the world look like when we get it turned upside down? What will it be like when we fulfill the mission that God has for us? And I'd like to share with you a passage from Revelation chapter 7 that paints a picture of what that looks like. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, out of reverence for the Word of God, if you can, to stand as we read this passage. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Dear God, we thank you for this beautiful picture. It gives us hope for where we're going. When we see a world that is divided and fragmented and at odds with each other, when we see accusations thrown about and cast between people, misunderstandings and prejudices and stereotypes that get in the way of our fellowship, we are encouraged to see this picture and realize that this is where you are leading us. Lord, we long to participate in your mission to get us there, and we long to see the consummation of that mission when we meet you in glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Be seated, please. The picture that we read in Revelation 7, the picture of the end times, pictures an innumerable, inclusive community all gathered together praising God with one voice. We have a picture of people who in times past would not have been able to understand one another, people who would have had negative stereotypes of each other people who would have been prejudiced against each other, people who may even have been sworn enemies of each other, but now they're gathered together. They are unified. They are joyful. They are praising together. 
And I tell you, I long for the day when I can see that. I long for the day when I can be a part of a crowd like that. I long for the time when I can see Israelis and Arabs celebrating together their common kinship through Father Abraham. I long for a time when I can hear Russians and Ukrainians singing in joyous harmony the songs of peace. I long for the day when I can see red state rednecks and blue state blue bloods celebrating the landslide victory of the Lamb over his enemies together. I long for a time when I can see soccer moms and welfare moms joining hands and sharing tales of the journey that's led them to the place of togetherness with one another. It's a beautiful picture, but it's not the way things are now, is it? Not by a long shot, nor was it the way things were back when the book of Acts was penned. The book of Acts doesn't begin with that joyous, inclusive crowd. The book of Acts begins with 120 Palestinian Jews who were so isolated, so insulated, that they were convinced that their God would be angry with them if they so much as ate a meal with a Gentile. They were convinced of one thing. They were convinced that whatever God is doing, whatever God is up to, He is going to be doing it in us and through us because, after all, we are the Jews. We are God's chosen people, and he is not working anywhere else but within us. But as we open the book of Acts, we hear Jesus' call to these people, and it's a call that points them toward that inclusive community that we read about in Revelation 7. You will be my witnesses, he tells them in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In that statement, we find the outline for the book of Acts. The book of Acts follows that outline. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And from the very beginning of that book, we find the Holy Spirit nudging, urging his people on toward greater inclusion of people who are not like them. Why, the day of Pentecost, the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit makes sure that people from all over the world can hear that message in their own native tongue. And then we turn around and a few few chapters later, we find that there is a special effort on the part of these new believers to make sure that the Greek-speaking widows are included in the relief efforts of the church. And then a couple chapters later, we find the church members being scattered by persecution And they go various places, and and one of them, Philip, goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel to the hated Samaritans with whom there had been generations of bad blood. Now they're included. And later in that chapter, the Holy Spirit arranges a meeting between Philip and a black African royal official who hears the gospel, receives the gospel, and now he is a part of the group. We see that gradual move toward inclusion. The same Holy Spirit 
who is moving that group toward greater inclusion is still at work in us and among us to shape us into a community of inclusion, the kind of which we read about in Revelation 7. It is his work and his purpose. But folks, we need to be looking and asking, how can we be a part of that? How can we cooperate with that mission that God has to have this inclusive community in which all are welcome and all are a part and all are valued? To answer that, I want to look at probably one of the best-known stories in the book of Acts, the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. This is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, and with good reason. It is the turning point of the book of Acts. As we look at that outline that we talked about, this is where it all turns in the direction of spreading the gospel to the whole world. At this point, the gospel is no longer something that is reserved for the Jewish people, but it spreads to those who are non-Jews. It, it enters the Gentile arena. And crossing that cultural barrier is huge and really becomes the backdrop for much of the rest of our New Testament. As we turn to that story, we find something really curious, or at least I find it curious. I would expect that God would begin this, this mission to the Gentiles by tapping some believers on the shoulders and saying, hey guys, I need you to do something for me. But the story doesn't begin with the believers. The story doesn't begin with Peter. Peter, who is the insider, the Christ follower, the one who knew the gospel so well that, that he was tapped to be the first person to ever proclaim the gospel, it doesn't start with Peter. It starts with the outsider. It starts with Cornelius, the Gentile, the officer in the hated, occupying Roman army. We start with him in chapter 10, starting the first verse. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. It begins with Cornelius, because there was something happening with Cornelius that Peter was unaware of and probably could not have known even if he wanted to. And that was that God was already at work in the life of Cornelius. Cornelius the outsider, Cornelius the Gentile, Cornelius the soldier for the hated Roman army. God was already at work within him. And Cornelius was already sensitive to God's movement within him. And so God reaches out toward him. And, and says, I've heard you. I know who you are. I know what's going on with you. And then he points Cornelius toward Peter. He says, there's someone who's going to lead you to the next step in your spiritual journey. His name is Simon Peter, and I want you to send for him and have him come to you to show you that, that next step. I read this and I realize that no doubt God is working in places that I could never guess or imagine, even if I tried. 
I have to conclude that God is working in people that I would never suspect that he's working in. I have to conclude that there are people out there who are sensitive to God, who are hearing God, who are turning their hearts toward God, that I would never guess had a spiritual bone in their bodies. And I have to also conclude that God is tapping them on the shoulder and saying, let me give you the next step. Let me tell you, let me direct you to someone who can help you. Is it possible that there are people out there, is it possible that there are, are pierced blue-haired punks out there who are sensitive to God and God is beginning to direct them to us? Is it possible that there are people that guys with long hair and covered with tattoos who are hearing the call of God and God is directing them toward us. I believe that there are people in the gay and lesbian community who are sensitive to God and God is seeking to direct them and to redeem them in the same way that he has redeemed us. I believe that God is at work even in people who don't vote like me and, and frankly who view people who vote like me as a danger to democracy. I believe God is at work in them and may actually be directing them toward me and people like me to help them take the next step in their spiritual journey. Now, that's exciting, isn't it? But I want to tell you, that's also scary. And I'll tell you why it's scary, because we're not any more ready for that movement of God than Peter was for Cornelius to come to him. Because you see, at the very time that Cornelius's men are making their way to Joppa to find Peter and invite him to come back to see Cornelius, at that very time, God realizes that unless something very fundamental within the core of Peter changes, when those men from Cornelius get there, Peter will not give them the time of day. And so God has to do some work in Peter, and he has to do it pretty quickly. God appears to Peter in a vision, and he shows him a bunch of food that is non-kosher, and he orders Peter to violate his kosher dietary laws. Now, among the Jews, there's nothing more central to their sense of identity than their kosher dietary laws. And God is telling Peter to violate those laws. And that's so central to Jewish piety that Peter refuses. He says, surely, Lord, surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. <laughs> the irony here is rich. <laughs> Peter stands so firm on his flawed understanding of the law that he issues a flat denial to the lawgiver himself. The godless Gentile, Cornelius, is the one who is open to and obedient to God in this story, while the godly, righteous Jew, Peter, is the one who flatly refuses a direct command from God. It's only after God makes the point explicit. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Followed by, three men are looking for you, so... Go up, or get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Only then does Peter begin to understand. And that raises the question for me, are there people out there who are seeking God, who are drawing close to God, who God is pointing toward me, but before I can even begin to help them, 
God has to break down some prejudices and some misunderstandings and some misconceptions in my heart? Is that possible? And is that a possibility with you as well? And so, Peter goes. Peter goes to Cornelius. I want us to to pause here and reflect on how significant it is that Peter goes. Because you see, between, between this little band of Jewish believers and Cornelius, there is a huge cultural gulf that's filled with barriers that have to be overcome. And the question is, will Peter go and cross those barriers and traverse that territory courageously himself? Or will he stay put and say, you know what? I have the truth. Anytime those Gentiles want to know God's will, they can come over here and meet with me and I'll be glad to share it with them. Will Peter go or will Peter wait for Cornelius to come? And that's significant, folks, because for decades in our churches, Our evangelistic strategy has focused on getting people to come. We say, hey, we're here. Everyone is welcome. Y'all come, and when you do, we'll tell you what you need to know. And I will tell you that our evangelistic strategies have been far less effective than they could have been because we emphasize come instead of go. And as long as we're expecting people to come to us, the ground is fertile for people to develop negative stereotypes of us, and they have. There are so many Christians out there who have the stereotype of us that we are arrogant, intolerant, exclusive, and judgmental. And in short, not the kind of people from whom one would expect to hear good news. The Gentiles of Peter's day had that kind of opinion of the Jews, and those stereotypes had to be broken down before... Cornelius could even begin to hear the message that that God had for him. And so God tells Peter, you go. Peter goes and he violates some, some, some amazing boundaries, some hard boundaries. He walks right into Cornelius's house, something that no Jew would have done unless prompted by God himself. He goes into Cornelius' house, and in doing so, he breaks down some of those barriers of prejudice and stereotype that would have kept them apart. And he's able to identify himself to Cornelius, not as a superior, but as a peer. When Cornelius tries to bow down before him, Peter is able to say, rise up, I am only a man myself. If we hope to be a community of inclusion, We have to learn to meet people on their own turf. We need to learn how to go into their homes, their neighborhoods, their coffee shops, their bowling alleys, their clubs, their organizations, because simply inviting them to to our events in our space will have increasingly diminishing returns. And so Peter enters Cornelius' space, and then... He makes himself vulnerable to Cornelius, and he listens to Cornelius. And in doing so, he overcomes even more of those negative stereotypes that Cornelius would have had. You see, Peter goes into Cornelius' house. He is divinely appointed to share God's message. But the first thing he does, 
Before he opens his mouth to share anything of God's will, the first thing he does is to confess his own failure to understand God's message. He says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Unclean. First thing Peter does is say, you know what? I got to tell you something. I'm a man of God, but I have misunderstood God all my life. I have misunderstood God with regards to how I ought to relate to you and how I ought to treat you and, and with the, the regard with which I ought to have for you. I'm when I hear that, I'm reminded of a story that Donald Miller tells in his book, Blue Like Jazz. Miller was a, a campus minister at super liberal Reed College in Portland, Oregon. The Princeton Review actually named Reed College the college where students are most likely to ignore God. A very godless campus. They have an annual festival on campus called Ren Fair, which is just a huge party where students get drunk and high and naked and engage in gross immorality. The tiny group of Christians that Miller was leading on that campus wanted to have some kind of presence at Ren Fair, but, but what? And, and how, what could they do to, to make any kind of difference in, with the kind of debauchery that was going on? And as they were brainstorming that, one of the students came up with an idea. He says, I know, we could have a confession booth. And the rest of the students just rolled their eyes. <laughs> but he said, no, 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 no. Here's the catch. We're not actually going to accept confessions. We're going to confess to them. We're going to confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. We have been bitter, and for that we are sorry. We will apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely. We will ask them to forgive us, and we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus on this campus. We will tell people who come into the booth that Jesus loves them. And Miller reports that that booth was the beginning of a lot of positive dialogue and not a few changed lives on that campus because they were willing to make themselves vulnerable as Peter did with Cornelius. And after he makes himself vulnerable, the next thing Peter does is he listens. He asks the question, may I ask why you sent for me? And then he listens carefully as Cornelius shares his story. I think of Jim Reynolds, who has had an effective outreach into the LGBT community. And he says the most important thing in reaching that community is not to rush in and tell people, here's what God says, but to hold back and to humbly ask, can you tell me your story? And then to listen carefully as that story is told. And so Peter listens carefully to Cornelius' story. And then he presents the good news. He starts by affirming what Cornelius already knows. And that is that Jesus was sent by God and he went about doing good and healing people who were under Satan's power. And then Peter adds the message of forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is always the core of the gospel when we find it in the New Testament. And as he does this, well, in the words of Forrest Gump, sure enough, God showed up. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. That's Acts 10, 44. 
And Peter concludes that since they have received the same spirit, they are proper candidates for baptism. So Cornelius and his household are baptized into Christ. You see, once we go and go onto other people's turf and share with them how God is operating in our lives and challenging us and listen carefully to their stories and reaffirm the truth they already know and then humbly share the core message of forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Once we've done that, we can expect God to show up as well and confirm that message. We can expect people to respond to that message. And we can expect that the same spirit who indwells us will begin to indwell them as well, just as he did with Cornelius. When that happens, we find that the outsider is an outsider no longer, but rather a member of the same body as us, that we are brothers and we are closer than any human relationship could possibly be. Now, that's something worth working for. And that's something worth celebrating, isn't it? Many years ago, when I was quite a young man, we had extended family visiting with us for Christmas. So somewhere during that Christmas break time, we decided to go to a movie together. We went to a very large movie theater, and it was crowded because, well, it was Christmas break, and everyone wanted to go to the movies. And it was, uh, we didn't know if we were going to be able to find a place where our whole group could sit together. But finally, amidst the crowd, I saw a very long row that was half occupied by a group of African-Americans, but the other half had just enough empty seats for our family. So I ran down to that row and rushed into it. And my family followed behind me. And I was, as I was going across, the, the black guy who was on the end of his group saw me and he stood up and he said, Hey, I don't want no white people in this row. There was silence and a little bit of a gasp. And some of my extended family members had already put it in reverse and were heading out of that row. But then I looked and I saw that black guy and recognized my friend and brother, Robert Martin. <laughs> and we hugged each other and we had a great time. You see, what was going on there was that the spirit who lives within me and the spirit who lives within Robert is a much more powerful unifying force than anything in the universe that might bring distrust and division between us. We are one because we share in the same spirit. And that's where God is leading us. But it's not an easy journey because we see what happens next. In chapter 11, it says the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers said, how wonderful it is that the Gentiles have now received the gospel. We will rush to make them our brothers and to unite with them in every way. Well, no, that's not really what it says. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Oh, Peter's in trouble. 
And he spends much of the, the, the next chapter, chapter 11, explaining, no, you've got to understand, God did this. It was God's idea. Here's what God did, and here's what he did with me, and here's what he did with Cornelius, and here's how we know that this is God's will. And after that, and they said, okay, we'll accept that. Whenever we become more inclusive, we can always count on there being trouble. There's going to be criticism, and it's going to be hard. Imagine how hard it was for that early church. Can you imagine the first after-services potluck at the Antioch Church of Christ where a Gentile sister innocently brings her favorite ham casserole? Can you imagine the upset? That's what they had to go through. And anytime we become more inclusive, we're going to have some upset. I've been preaching for just a little over 50 years, and I will tell you that for most of those 50 years, we've been fighting what we call the worship wars. People discussing, and, and sometimes not too kindly, how we ought to worship and what songs we ought to sing and what format we ought to have. And in my experience, very little of that discussion had very much to do with the core issues of God's will. They have a whole lot more to do with differences in culture and generation. We have a hard time assimilating even, you know, succeeding generations of our own people. And I, I've heard it for years, young people saying, why do the old people want to come to church and just sing those stupid funeral songs? And the old people saying, why is it the young people just want to come to church and sing those stupid 7-Eleven songs? You know, seven words repeated 11 times. <laughs> If it's hard for us to incorporate each other into an inclusive body, how much more difficult is it to incorporate people who have not been raised with our cultural experiences and values and don't share our sense of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? It's hard. But I want to suggest to you that it's worth it. I can cite several examples of churches that have paid the price to be inclusive and have benefited from it. I think many years ago, the Richardson East Church of Christ, at a time when, when a diagnosis of AIDS was a death sentence, and churches were turning away people who had AIDS out of fear for their own safety, the Richardson East Church opened their doors and said, if you have AIDS, come on in. We'll welcome you. We'll hug you. We'll love you. And they had a powerful ministry in that community, a community that really had, had learned not to expect very much positive from the Christian community. Or I think of a church in Duncanville, Texas, where someone invited a friend who belonged to a motorcycle club. And he came and heard the gospel and responded. Then he invited a friend who invited another friend who invited another friend. And the whole character of the church has changed. What used to be a conservative, middle-of-the-road church of Christ, you can go in now and you can see guys with long ponytails covered with tattoos, leading prayer, giving devotional thoughts. And everybody benefits and is, is blessed by that. I think of the North Atlanta church where they began reaching cocaine addicts, first a few and now a whole bunch. Don McLaughlin, who preaches there, talks about the changes in the personality of the church that that's brought about. And he says, it's been hard. It's been a hard road. He says, you know, some of these folks are not fully recovered and others of them relapse. He says, one of the things that they've learned at North Atlanta is they can't keep state-of-the-art electronics in their building. It disappears because some of these relapsed addicts are stealing it and, and selling it for drugs. They've just learned to, to deal with that. 
But Don talks about what a blessing it has been to see the transforming power of Jesus on display week after week after week and how encouraging that's been to the church. Or I think of the the Preston Road Church of Christ in the wealthy suburbs of Dallas where a lady who had been employed in the sex industry came to a ladies' Bible class one day And as a miracle of God, rather than being given the the arm's length or the cold shoulder or being made to feel uncomfortable, she was accepted and received, and then she brought a friend and then another friend. And now in that church's small group, she will find well-heeled Dallas socialites alongside women who have lived a very different life in a very different culture, who have all learned how to love Jesus together and to have mutual appreciation for one another. Last year, that church provided access to education, job training, financial assistance, mental health services, and spiritual support to more than 700 formerly trafficked girls and sexually exploited women and their children. What a, yeah. What a blessing it is when we allow God to form us into a community of inclusion. The question is, will we cooperate with his mission? Will we pay the price to cross cultural barriers? Will we accept the inevitable changes that happen as people who are unlike us come into our fellowship? My prayer is that we will. I'd like to go ahead and call up the the worship team at this time. And if the prayer team would like to come to the front as well. I want to conclude by saying that the inclusiveness The inclusiveness that that we've talked about this morning, the inclusiveness that's pictured in Revelation 7, it is for you. This morning, if you are feeling like an outsider, you don't have to feel that any longer. This morning, if you're feeling that you're somehow less than or not fully received into the, the body of believers, you don't have to feel that any longer. This is a group that will love you, receive you, accept you, There are prayer warriors here who will pray with you. And if you've never made that commitment to Jesus, if you've never identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, well, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And there are people here who will help you to do that. And we encourage you to do that, to make that known while we stand and sing this next song together. Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.